Now please turn once again in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, as we continue to work our way through Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. And we will read through chapter 9, verse 1. But before reading, let's go before the Lord in prayer. O Lord, our great, majestic, sovereign God, with humility and reverence we bow under the authority of thy word. And we pray that even though the one who brings the message is totally unworthy to bring it, and even though we are unworthy to have the word, to hear and to know and to love, and yet, Father, thou art our Father. We have not, as believers in Christ, been left to ourselves, but we have the Word of God. Under this authority, we pilgrimage all the way to our heavenly home, and we pray that we will have hearts that are submissive to the Word of God. May someone today who is lost and undone come to know Christ, And we pray that the people of God will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Heavenly Father, I would with thy people pray especially for the youth of our congregation, that this theme in this text, especially one portion of this theme, but all of it, of course, would be so deeply meaningful to them that it would never be forgotten, that lives would be changed as we consider what Jesus teaches us here in this passage, that some young people will be able to look back to this text and say, God used that remarkably in my life, and I've never been the same. We ask, Father, that as we are under the ordinary means of grace week after week, and sometimes might not even remember from week to week everything that was preached, that we might know that nonetheless the Spirit of God is working through it. But we also are thankful for those remarkable times in which the Holy Spirit opens a heart in a special way that is unforgettable. We pray for that today, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 22. Pardon me. Mark 8, beginning with verse 22, this is the word of God. And they came to Bethesda, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? 
Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is God's word. Please be seated. At this point, the curtain now rises on Acts two of the book of Mark. The disciples have failed to understand who Jesus is. You remember back in last week's text in verses 17 and 18, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And then in verse 21, he said to them, do you not yet understand? And so at this point, the disciples do not have clarity about who Jesus is or why he came. Now, all of this is going to change. And over these next chapters that lead us to the cross and resurrection, all of that will change and there will be immense clarity that is gained. It will change gradually but it will change really. And so in this section, we move much deeper with the disciples into an understanding of who Jesus is. And the great question of this section is, who is Jesus and how are we to confess him before men? We begin with Jesus healing a blind man. That's the first thing. Jesus heals a blind man, verses 22 through 26. And it's a personal healing in the area where the feeding of the 5,000 had taken place, Jesus spat on the man's eyes. They have brought him, he's blind, he cannot see. He spat on the man's eyes, indicating to him, I'm going to take care of your eyes. I'm going to heal you. And then there are three peculiarities with his healing that you will have noticed that begin with verse 23. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And then as we read on, we see that there is at this point a partial healing. 
I can see vague moving shapes. And then Jesus lays his hands a second time on him. In verse 25, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, what's the meaning of this? Well, as with all of the miracles, we know that it shows the establishment of the kingdom of God. As with all of the healing ministry of Jesus, we know that this miracle also points back to the, to the Messiah who was to come. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap his in heart and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. But does Jesus approach to this healing have anything to say to us? Does his approach to this healing hint at a peculiar meaning for this particular miracle? And the answer to that is yes. The gradual points back to the blindness and the deafness of which we just read in verses 17 and 18. The disciples who have been with Jesus, who have observed his miracles, and yet they don't get it. They don't understand. They don't realize who he is. And Jesus now leads them into a fuller, gradual understanding of who he is. So the purpose of this miracle, in large measure, done in this way. Of course, Jesus could have healed the man immediately. He didn't even have to be with the man to heal the man. We know that. But he chose to heal in this gradual way because it is an observable parable to his disciples who need to grow. And he is saying to them, and he still works this way, that I am leading you into a deeper understanding of who I am and what I came to do and accomplish. And it's going to be gradual, but it's real. You're going to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of who I am. Now, this is an encouragement to you and to me because he always completes what he begins. As Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And this is what he is now doing with his disciples. So on the heels of this, we come to this question about who Jesus is. And this is the second thing. Who is Jesus? Peter's confession. And we read of it in verses 27 to 30. Now, if you went to Matthew, you would find much more about this confession. This is Mark's gospel, and we want to know why Mark writes as he does. And first of all, there is the significance of the location you see, it says here in verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So he's in this area, this pagan region, and near a temple that was built in honor of Augustus Caesar. It has strong Roman connections. And so what would have been on the minds of many of them, without doubt, is this claim of Augustus Caesar to be worshipped, this claim of Caesar to be Lord. And Jesus wants them to understand, not Caesar, I am Lord. No one else, nothing can take the place of my lordship. Now, remembering the persecuting background of Mark's gospel, that it's taking place in large measure, we think, during the time frame of the Neronian persecution in which the church was so horribly persecuted in the city of Rome itself, what an encouragement this would be to remember the lordship of Christ over the lordship of Caesar. 
So who is Jesus? Ever since leaving their nets, this has been the pressing issue. He is showing to them who he is. And the disciples had asked in Mark 4 when Jesus rebuked the wind and the sea, and he had said, be still. Who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this that can do such things, that can achieve such things, that can perform such miracles. And now Jesus wants them to see more clearly just as when he just healed the man that was blind. And in this passage, he calls for faith. And he began with the more comfortable question. Who do other people around you say that I am? Who do they say that I am? Who is Jesus? Well, there are some views that are inadequate in verse 28. And they told him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And so there's a certain understanding that he is in the line of the prophets. They understand something about who Jesus is. John the Baptist or Elijah, one of the prophets. But why is this inadequate? It's inadequate because it fails to see who he really is. It makes him a prophet just in the line of the prophets like others. It does not grasp his uniqueness, that he is fulfilling all that the prophets spoke. Like many today who would say nice things about Jesus and laud him along with other world leaders and world religious leaders. Well, That's an inadequate view of who Jesus is to the point of being a wrong view of who Jesus is. That's who people say that I am. That's who people today say that Jesus uh, was. And so he asks the question, uh, who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? It's different. I'm asking you now, my disciples who have been with me, who have observed me, and I'm gradually leading you into this realm of faith. Who do you say that I am? I ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? Do you know this Christ and can you confess him? And so Peter answers the one anointed by God. You are the Christ the anointed one, the fulfillment of all Israel's hopes. In the Old Testament prophets, the priests, and the kings, the prophets, the priests, the kings were all anointed. And now we have this prophet, priest, and king, the anointed one of God, the Messiah who has come. Jesus, according to Peter, is the Messiah. He confesses it bravely. He confesses it forthrightly. Peter's confession expresses the truth of the gospel, not all that there is to say about Jesus, but an essential about who Jesus is. And yet men still look like trees walking. They see, but they see still in a rather opaque way. Something clear, but there's much more to learn, and they will be learning it over these chapters to come. Now, let me bring you two thoughts at this point that I think are very, very important. The first thought is you don't need to wait until you have a full understanding of who Jesus is to confess him. Faith and understanding may be real, but growing incrementally. And so if you think you have to wait until you have it all cased before you confess Christ, no, indeed, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, confess him, The Lord is gradually, incrementally helping you to see more clearly. Perhaps now it's like like trees walking, but it will become more clear over time. 
But the second thing that I think is important to point out here is that even though others had a view of Jesus that had some right elements to it, they also did not see clearly who Jesus is, and that's what we face today in a different context. Why is the view that Jesus is the founder of a world religion inadequate, that he's just a prophet, just a great moral teacher? Why is that inadequate? Well, J.G. Voss, you hear us talk about Gerhardus Voss around here a lot. This was his son, J.G. Voss, who was a missionary to China at one point in his life before the Maoist Revolution. J.G. Voss, when he would go into a village, had a poster that he would begin to unravel. And it had several panels. In the first panel, it showed a deep pit with steep sides, and there was a man who despite all of his efforts, could not climb out of the pit. And then in the second panel, as it opened, there was a Confucianist who came. And the Confucianist stood at the brink of the pit saying to the poor man in the pit, why didn't you watch where you were walking? A careful man doesn't fall into a pit. And then the panels open and there's a third panel. And in the third panel, there's a Taoist priest and the Taoist priest looks down into the pit and says to the man, why don't you burn incense? And then there's a fourth panel in which a Buddhist monk says, poor man, the trouble with you is that you want things you cannot have. Just rid yourself of the desire to get out of the pit. But in the fifth panel, a Christian comes. And the Christian has knelt down and he is actually helping the man get out of the pit from which he could not have extricated himself. He is bringing to him biblical Christianity. He is bringing him the truth about Jesus. He is bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ, showing that all human schemes are futile, that only the gospel can save that the message of Christ crucified and risen from the dead, which Jesus will begin to underscore in the chapter we have just read today, the message of Christ crucified and risen from the dead, full confession of Christ awaits the man who is being brought out of the pit. In other words, any other view of Jesus, but the view that Jesus teaches of himself in the gospels and that is illumined in the epistles, any other view of Jesus is inadequate because Jesus is absolutely unique. There is only one Lord. There is only one Savior. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And we cannot, we must not in any way shave the edges of confessing the uniqueness of Jesus Christ before a watching world. Young people, there's something that William Hendrickson says that I want to bring to you. Hendrickson says, and this is on the issue of, but who do you say that I am, that conveys this very important lesson to us. That a true believer is one who is willing, whenever necessary, to fly in the face of popular opinion and openly to express a conviction that is contrary to that of the masses. In the best sense of the term, the believer is willing to come forth boldly in the interests of truth. And he adds, conformity to the world, to, <clears throat> with the world compromises on basic issues, the unwillingness to be distinctive 
is strongly condemned in Scripture. Now, I ask us all, but young people, I especially ask you, we are living in dark times. Of course, there are dark times. We live in this present evil age, but we live in a time of peculiar darkness at the moment. And we ask the question of ourselves, I ask you the question, am I a confessor of Jesus Christ? Will I confess him boldly? Will I take my stand for him? Will I be what the Bible calls me to be as a disciple of Christ? Do I know him? Do I serve him? Of monumental importance, we learn something about this Messiah that is to be confessed as we go on. Essentials about Jesus' mission that will be related and repeated over and over again in, within these next few chapters as we see together. And that leads us then to the third thing. The Messiah must suffer, die, and rise. Now look again at these verses, verses 31 and following. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So he speaks of himself as the Son of Man. This great passage in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus has used this expression twice already in chapter 2. And yet the disciples evidently hadn't picked up on the meaning of this. This is taken from that mysterious figure in Daniel chapter 7 where there are thrones that are set and kingly power that is given to him as he represents the people of God. This is the Messiah King. It is the divine messianic royal title of Jesus, the Son of Man. And he points to his vocation here and how surprising it should be that this great figure from Daniel chapter 7, divine figure, with whom Jesus identifies himself, this Son of Man, must suffer and die. But that's what he says in verse 31, that he must suffer and die. And don't miss the must that is here. It does not point to the triumph of his enemies. It points to the triumph of the crucified. It points to the triumph of God's own perfect plan for the redemption of people like you and me from our sins. And so God holds the reign throughout. Everything that we're going to see in the remainder of Mark's gospel as he goes to the cross, God is holding the reins. And it's a must. There's a divine necessity that is here. The cross is no accident. The atonement is necessary for the forgiveness of our sins, that the demands of the law be met, that the penalty of the law be paid in our place. The atonement is necessary for the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose. But not only must he suffer, must he die, but he must also rise from the dead. And this is one of those elements that remains obscure to them until he actually is crucified and rises from the dead. But he must rise from the dead so that there's no gloom here. It's purposeful death, resurrection to life. It's the divine must. You remember how this is put in Isaiah 53, that great passage that speaks of these things. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
or after his resurrection in Luke's gospel in chapter 24, in verses 26 and 27, Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? Necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He must suffer. He must die. He must rise from the dead. And though Israel's very leaders will crucify their own Messiah who has come to their nation, yet we also know that this is according, as we read in Acts chapter 2, according to the determinate counsel the predetermined plan of God. Now, in this context, understand Jesus' rebuke of Peter in verses 32 and 33. Peter will have none of this. The idea that Jesus would suffer and die, undoubtedly, they probably still had the popular notion that he had come to bring political deliverance from Rome. This can happen to the Messiah is their thinking. You want to say, Peter, have you never read Isaiah 53? Peter, have you never read Psalm 22? But they're not yet making that connection. Now, people of God, the cross is an offense to Peter. He needs God's point of view. And he, he is simply, the Lord Jesus is simply indicate, indicating here the will of God. He doesn't yet go into detail to explain all that is necessary for them to understand later. He simply says, this needs to be stressed. This must happen. He is preparing his disciples for his crucifixion and resurrection. Peter, that's right now what you need to know. And you need to believe me and be my disciple. And you need to follow me and simply submit yourself to the authority with which I'm teaching these truths. This is the important thing for you. You don't have to know everything now. It is enough for you that I know and that you follow me. Now, that's still true for us because all of us will face things that are opaque to us, dark to us, incomprehensible to us. How does this relate to God's promises? How does this relate to what God is doing in my life that he says to me is for his glory and my good. I don't see the connection. I don't see the relationship. This is how Job ends, the culmination of the book in which he essentially says to Job, Job, you look to me. You don't have to understand. You trust me because I know. And that's essentially what he's doing with Peter in this passage. And so Peter, this must happen. You need to follow. You must be my disciple. You must follow me in what I'm telling you about my crucifixion and my resurrection from the dead. And so naturally, this leads us to the theme of discipleship. This is the fourth thing. Discipleship, the way of the cross, which is in verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus here then brings a call to discipleship to the disciples and others who are listening. And through this text, he is bringing for you and for me a call to discipleship. This call is a call 
to die to self. It's a call to self-denial. A true disciple does not rest upon self for salvation, but upon Christ alone for salvation. Paul says, what were once gains for me, I count loss for Christ. And the image that the Lord Jesus brings here, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The image that the Lord brings here for Peter, the disciples, the crowd, for us, is of a criminal condemned to crucifixion, carrying his cross to execution. How meaningful this image was to Mark's readers, some of whom were being crucified in Nero's gardens. How meaningful this image was to Christians reading Mark post-resurrection. And we are post-resurrection readers, how meaningful this should be to us, because what it says to us is that we believers take shame and persecution willingly. We don't seek it. That's not right. But we take shame and persecution willingly when it comes in the providence of God, because Christ is preeminent, because Christ is first in all things in our Christian hearts and lives. And the disciples must be ready to die to self, and then they can begin to live. They not only must be willing to die, they must have a Christ-centered living. Verses 34 to 37, look again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous generation and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So this self-denial is Christian living, real living people of God. That's the point. It's not asceticism. It's much more radical than that. It's a turning away from idolatry and a turning away from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness. Lane, a commentator, says, Jesus stipulated that those who wish to follow him must be prepared to shift the center of gravity in their lives from a concern for self to reckless abandon to the will of God. The theology of life affixed is grounded in the paradox that a man can guarantee that dynamism only by sacrificing it. Isn't this Paul's meaning in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20? I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So let's be concrete. We aren't just talking about Christians that are thrown to lions or who are burned at the stake, but to wives loving husbands that do not love them in return. 
uh, to men serving employers who despise them and despise their Christian confession, or that mom with a child with no dad in the home who is alone. And she gets the children up and ready for school, and she goes to work, and she makes dinner, and she does it alone. And she helps the children with homework and takes the children to the doctor and nurses them at night and does the housework after the children are in bed and counts her few pennies. And she does the wash and falls in bed herself and starts all over again the next day with no end in sight. And despite her busyness, she feels incredibly alone, but she's not alone. And she knows this Christian woman of whom I speak she knows deep within that she's not alone, that she's learning something of what it means that the character of Jesus is being drawn within her heart, that she's learning something of what it means to commune with the living God. Yes, when Jesus calls a woman, he bids her to die that she might live. Eternal hope is the issue here. Oh, if we could but learn to focus on that certain future promise of God in the here and now, to look forward to his promise that it may affect life now, to gain life by sacrificing a life in Christ yields eternal loss, will be seen at the final judgment committed to Jesus, according to verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. The text affirms, young people, listen, the text affirms that there will be temptation to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. You may have experienced already among your friends, not willing to speak the truth, not willing to stand up for what you know the Bible says is right. Maybe some have gone off to college. You've fallen in with the crowd. You are no longer distinctive in your Christian walk and commitment. There will be the temptation to be ashamed of Jesus. The text says, I know it's hard, but look at what's coming. Think of chapter 8 of Romans. It is that very spirit of adoption bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. Take heart from the fact that there is a tribunal that awaits us, that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ as believers in Jesus Christ who are justified by grace through faith alone. Be faithful in your Christian walk. What a wonderful Christ you have. And until then, life is lived. Until that day, until the coming of Christ, until that tribunal, life is lived under the authority of this word. Life is lived by taking the cross and living under it. Luther was under no misconceptions about this when he said that suffering is a mark of the church. And the Reformation Church understood this with all their joy and praise, they understood this. And it is true. But he gives his own victory to God's people. 
At the British Museum, there's an inscription from the theater of Ephesus that I've read about at least once, maybe more than once. It, it's about a combatant that would have been in the games. And it says, he fought three fights and was twice crowned with, with wreaths. Take your Bibles for a few minutes. Let's turn to some passages. Obviously, the New Testament reflects that very theme. Obviously, Paul in particular did. Let's turn to passages. Let's go to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. We'll read these quickly without much comment on my part. Revelation 3, verse 11, <clears throat> to the church of Philadelphia. Revelation 3, 11, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. You see the reference to crown or to wreath. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. In verse 4, he says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned. That is, he doesn't get the wreath unless he competes according to the rules. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Another reference to the wreath that awaits us. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and following. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable, that is an imperishable wreath, a crown. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verse 19. First Thessalonians 2, verse 19. Paul again writes, First Thessalonians 2:19, "For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. I want you to see how pervasive this theme is in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, especially referencing elders, by the way. So I exhort elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown 
of glory. Turn back again to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And notice verses 7 and 8. This is the passage in which he begins in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Turn to the book of James. James, the first chapter. Verse 12. James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, this reward is the reward of grace. It's not something you earn or merit, but it's the reward of grace. Now, back here in Mark's gospel, did you note chapter 9, verse 1, that after he has spoken about the temptation to be ashamed, and he has said, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels of those who have been ashamed of him. Then he says in chapter 9, verse 1, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now Jesus views his comings as one coming, that is to say one unit. So we move on and there are some who will see the kingdom and power at the transfiguration. That's next. They will see the power, the kingdom come in power in his resurrection from the dead. They will see his power, the kingdom's power in his ascension on high. They will see the kingdom come with power on the day of Pentecost and they will see the kingdom come with power when he returns on the last day. And so the Lord Jesus is saying, I want your hearts and your minds to be focused on that day in which I will say, I am ashamed of some who were ashamed of me, but also on that day, you will know and you will see and you will perceive that the kingdom of God has come with omnipotent power and God has made you a part of it. Do not be ashamed of Jesus. Young people, do not be ashamed of Jesus, but live in light of the coming of Christ. Young people, run the race to win. Run the race to reach the goal that God has set before you. Do not be derailed. You know, people, do some of you think, if I actually follow Jesus in this way, if I put Christ first, I'll not live a very fulfilling life because I'll not satisfy my own longings. I will not satisfy my own dreams. 
You put Christ first and you will have better longings and you will have better dreams. In 1847, that great missionary to Africa, David Livingston, spoke to students at Cambridge, urging them to devote themselves to missions. Now, I understand that God does not call everyone to leave the country or go to another continent, and that's not my point for giving you Livingston's words. We're all called to live for Christ no matter where we are. And here's what Livingston said, and this is how he would answer you who think the Christian life is not very fulfilling. So speaking to the students at Cambridge, David Livingston said in 1857, I personally have never ceased to rejoice that God has entrusted me with this service. People talk a lot about the sacrifice involved in devoting my life to Africa. But can this be called a sacrifice at all if we give back to God a little of what we owe Him? And we owe Him so very much that we shall never be able to pay off our debt. Can that be called a sacrifice which gives to ourselves the deepest satisfaction, which develops our best powers, and justifies us in having the greatest hopes and expectations, and away with this word, away with such thoughts. It is anything else than a sacrifice, rather it is a privilege. For a moment, fear, illness, sufferings, dangers, and the giving up of so many conveniences which seem to be indispensable for our life may hold us back, but only for a moment. It is nothing to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I never offered a sacrifice, said David Livingston. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. And oh, young people, let me speak from my heart to you. Preach this message to your heart. Do not be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Always put him first. Do not be ashamed of Jesus, but rather with Paul say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of my Savior, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. How can I be ashamed of Jesus Christ who died for my sins on the cross and rose from the dead? Do you know these words? Surely you must. Jesus, and shall it ever be? A mortal man ashamed of thee, ashamed of thee whom angels praise, whose glories shine through endless days. Ashamed of Jesus? Sooner far, let evening blush to own a star. He sheds the beams of light divine o'er this benighted soul of mine. Ashamed of Jesus? Just as soon let midnight be ashamed of noon. Tis midnight with my soul till he, bright morning star, bids darkness flee. 
ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend on whom my hopes of heaven depend? No, when I blush, be this my shame that I had no more revere his name. Ashamed of Jesus, yes, I may, when I've no guilt to wash away, no tear to wipe, no joy to crave, no fears to quell, no soul to save. Till then, nor is the boasting vain. Till then, I boast a Savior slain. And oh, may this my portion be, that Christ is not ashamed of me. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen.